An Eye for an Eye by William A. McGarry An almost imperceptible zephyr from the elm-shaded avenue added through the raised windows of Clayton's beautiful mansion, swaying the silken curtains ever so slightly. A little cloud of pungent powder smoke lazily rose, disintegrated, and was carried away. Clayton, in evening dress, stood stupidly over the prone bodies of Marsden, his lifelong chum, and she who had been his wife. The revolver, given him by the dead man on their first trip after big game, was in his hand. It was an automatic, needing but the slightest pressure to let loose its messengers of death. A pool of blood from the breast of the woman stained the carpet a darker hue. She lay as she had fallen, save her right arm, which, thrown up in protection, had limply relaxed and settled to her side. Her heaving breast had grown still, and no sound but the breathing of Clayton broke the intense stillness. Marsden, his features distorted in the death grin of fear, had not moved. His body lay crumpled as though every bone were broken. A bell clanged somewhere in the house, but Clayton took no heed. It was followed by a crash, and a squad of bluecoats led by the precinct captain entered, with drawn revolvers. The automatic was taken from Clayton's unresisting hand, and he was manacled. No questions were asked. They were unnecessary. Time passed unnoticed, and Clayton sat mute and unseeing behind the narrow bars. He slept and ate mechanically. The protestations of friendship and offers of help, which had plenteously at first reached his cell, passed without answer, and now he was left severely alone. Only once did he speak, just before the jury went out. The unwritten law was his defense. He said but little, a word picture of his life as it had been before his one-time friend stepped in, a sketch of his ideals, the feelings that came to him when he saw his home had been destroyed. That was all. Then again he sank into the chair, silent, morose. Presently a stir followed by a death-like hush masked the return of the jury. A deep voice sounded unnecessarily loud in the stifling stillness of the courtroom. Not guilty, it said. As one in a dream, Clayton walked from the place, he submitted passively to congratulations. Dully, without thought, he answered business questions from his lawyer, whose face bore a look of conscious pride at the victory. A taxicab, called by a friend, stopped at the curb to receive him. He was sharply reminded that he had not paid the fare as he left the vehicle before the door of his home. Home. The unspoken word jarred his nerves. Things were sadly out of place. Why did this picture persist in staring at him? Why this old Japanese chair, 
his last birthday gift to her, always bar his way. All the house seemed wrapped in an atmosphere of gloom and despair. Voices called from corners, behind chairs, and the suddenly lighted electrics revealed no one. Petulantly, he invaded the upper regions of the house. A drawer in his small bureau slid open, creaking to his pull. A blue, burnished automatic, mate to that other, sparkled before his eyes. Unthinkingly, his fingers closed over it. As in a dream, he wandered back to that room he had left months ago, manacled, accused. He gazed, unseeing, into the chilly blue barrel of the weapon in his hand. His eyes strayed around, then fell on the dark stain on the rug. He forced himself to look away. Then he found the stain again before his eyes. It seemed to mock him, and once he thought he heard a chuckle. His blood froze in his veins as it dissolved, took shape, and showed her face. For many minutes he gazed into her eyes. They were sad and reproachful. Perhaps, after all, he had been wrong, hasty. He could see her as she looked that first day they met, then as she looked on their wedding day. And he had killed her, perhaps without cause. He forgot that the jury of his peers had acquitted him. Forgot everything except that the fear of death to which he had sent her was on him. Summoning all his will, he tore his gaze away from the dark, ominous stain. Again, his eyes fastened on the blued muzzle of the revolver. Nervously toying with the safety catch, his fingers unloosed it. The whir of an automobile passing on the avenue grew less distinguishable. Then it took strength and swelled into an eerie moan of anguish. It sounded to him like an accusation. Again he called on his will, and unconsciously his muscles tightened, answering the leaping surge of his heart. The double grip of the automatic released a spring hidden in its perfect steel heart. As quick as thought itself, the mechanism obeyed its law. An empty shell flew out with a snap, and there was a dull thud, then silence. Outside, a blue coat, idly swinging his club and ruminating on the law which allowed a rich man to go free, suddenly stiffened as the hound at bay. All sign of laziness left him, and he bounded up the steps of the mansion, two at a time. A whistle sounded. For the second time, the massive front door was forced open. For the second time, a squad of police entered the gorgeously furnished parlor of Clayton's home. An odor of powder smoke met them, strong and pungent. A rapidly enlarging pool of blood was darkening the outlines of the already dark, ugly stain on the rug. Open-mouthed, the bluecoat stood, tense and silent. A rattling of curtain rings boomed, almost deafening in their ears. Silently, the captain, he who had led that other squad, turned and gestured, 
and the men filed out, leaving one on guard. Again all was silent, save for the whispering breeze, fanning the smoke and rustling the silken curtains. The End of An Eye for an Eye by William A. McGarry